With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to SI's Planet Football Podcast, where each week we discuss the latest in the world of soccer. SI.com soccer editor, Avi Creditor, joined today by SI senior writer, Grant Wall. And once again for, God, it's been forever, uh, from across the pond, Ben Littleton, SI.com contributor. Guys, welcome to today's show. Thanks for coming back on, Ben. I, I was just telling you, I'm having a lot of nostalgia here. I might even cry. Grant, <laughs> hold it together. Come on, Grant. You can do it. <laughs> Um, guys, I, I want to start today, obviously, talking Champions League. This is the day after uh, Lionel Messi put Jerome Boateng on the wrong side of highlights around the world um, and and really just kind of reaffirmed what we already knew is that he's incredible. Um, but his performance yesterday in leading Barcelona to a 3 nothing win in the first leg of the Champions League semifinals uh, over Bayern Munich, um, guys, just... I mean, we think we've seen it all with Messi, and then Grant, he goes and, and does something like this. Well, Barcelona's been on a really nice run of late, and it seemed like Messi and Neymar and Suarez have really started to get on the same page. But Messi, as Messi can do, took it again to a higher level yesterday of just individual brilliance and has to be one of the top five games he's ever had when you just look at, at the occasion the opponent, Pep Guardiola, the manager he had for so long at Barcelona, and even the game itself that Messi has this five-minute run of just ridiculous brilliance in the second half. But until that point, Bayern was getting what they wanted from that game. After the crazy start with three in the back and, and then switching to four once it appeared, that was what Pep had to do. And then things were starting in the early part of the second half. Bayern got off to a pretty good start. And then Messi just becomes messy again and and you know it's been a little while i guess since he's it's you know put out a performance quite up in the stratosphere like that we saw him last year at, uh, at the world cup and, and he got to the final but was a little downbeat at times i don't know ben i mean this has to be one of the best messy games we've ever seen yeah I've, i i would agree with that certainly when you consider the other big games he's and, and why he, he is so brilliant is because he always turns on in the big games, you know, against um, Real Madrid. He scored hat-tricks, uh, his brilliant goal in the semi-final against Real Madrid in, in 2011, his performance in the Champions League final in, uh, two, in that year as well, 2011. So he does turn on in the big games. But this was different, Grant, as you say, because Guardiola was the coach. So while everyone focused on the fact that this was the first time Pep had come back to Camp Nou as um, an opposition coach at uh, at Barcelona in charge of Bayern. It was also a big moment for for Messi as well, because if if Guardiola was the guy that that created the monster, you know, M- Messi had had a point to prove against him, and and he did that in in such an amazing way. And I was trying to um, think. Back to the last time I saw Messi celebrate a goal like he did. 
Mm. Not just the first goal, the second goal as well. But it was so raw. It was more than just relief. It was something almost visceral because what he had done was so great. He's come up against Neuer, I think, eight times and never scored past him. This was a match of of really high tension. And at at the moment when Messi scored the first goal, it was getting a little bit tetchy. Mm. There was a lot of niggle. There was a lot of aggro. You could see almost a second yellow card coming out for someone. In fact, the first goal came about because the Bayern players were, were claiming that Neymar had dived and, and wanted him punished. So there was you know, a bit of argy-bargy between the players. Neuer reacted quickest and tried to get the ball out to Bernat, who was dispossessed by Dani Alves, and then Messi did the rest. But the way he responded to that first goal was was really told you just how important it was for Messi. And this has been an amazing season for him because back in December, he was barely talking to Luis Enrique. He was benched for a game, the first game back from their winter break in, in January against Sociedad. There was a lot of talk in, in the press over here that Manchester City or Chelsea or an English club were lining up a a monster bid and he might be leaving Barcelona. Luis Enrique wasn't safe in his position. He might not even have seen out the season. And the turning point, according to insiders in Barcelona, happened actually in Zurich when Cristiano Ronaldo won the Ballon d'Or. And as part of his speech in winning the Ballon d'Or before he gave out that roar um, that that surprised (laughs) everyone... um, he said, "Well, now I've won three, and this, you know, my next target is to is to go level with Messi and win another one, and go go four, uh, win a fourth. So, so I'm level with Messi, and and Messi didn't like that. He was there and he smiled politely and clapped, and he came second. But Messi didn't like that. When they got back to Barcelona, the whole club just gathered together and said, we can't let Ronaldo win another of these. Um, let's all work hard to to get Messi to to win it again. And that seems to have been the catalyst. And now we're seeing him reach." performance levels that you know we certainly haven't seen I'd say for four years if at all because as you said what he, what he did against Bayern Munich was sensational. I would also say too this meme that it, that goes out of Messi just destroying Jerome Boateng and part of me feels a little bad for Boateng because here's a guy who's a World Cup winner who's one of the best center backs in my opinion in the world um, a guy who's won a lot of stuff over the years, won the Champions League. Nick Zaccardi finding his medal on the floor of, of Wembley, right. if you That's remember right. that great story, and getting it back to him. Um, for Messi to do that to Boateng, I think, also cements in my mind how transcendent that specific play was, because this was this was a, a tremendous defender. And then also to beat Neuer quite easily. You mentioned that Neuer is a guy who Messi had never scored upon before. And Neuer was having a tremendous game when you look at a couple of the saves he made early on, world-class saves, uh, the play where he came out on Neymar uh, as the sweeper-keeper was another tremendous play. And that's a guy that if you're going to beat him, you've got to be at your best. He was at his best. I love it when you see the best against the best and see plays like that happen. Could you imagine yeah. uh, if Messi had done that goal on the World Cup stage in the final oh. against Neuer and Boateng? Then I think we're talking about the greatest goal of all time. No, I mean it was, it was really that that epic. Uh, I mean, it, you know, you can't you don't want to overstate too many things. But then again, you know, we're seeing, you know, for the casual sports fan in America, this is Jordan in his prime, and and maybe even better. It's it's really unbelievable what 
what Messi's able to do. And now, now Ben, let me put it back to you in the Ballon d'Or conversation. I mean, is this is this something that's going to be wrapped up by June? Barcelona, you know, it looks like they're good for the final, and they are the informed team in the world right now. I don't think that, you know, anything can happen when they play Real Madrid or you know Juventus's quality as well. But you know, is is this an award that can be wrapped up as as early as June? Well, there's not a major tournament. There, there are obviously there's the Copa America this summer. There's not a World Cup or a European Championship um, this summer. So in in those years, it, it tends to go to a team or a player from a team that's won the the Champions League. And yet Barcelona are in prime position. They're two points clear at the top in La Liga. They've got one foot in the final. And yet in every competition, apart from uh, the Copa del Rey, in which they're in the final, Real Madrid already out. But Real Madrid could still pit them. You know, Barcelona have got to play Atletico Madrid in the league. And if they only draw that game and Real Madrid win all their others, Real Madrid will win the title on head-to-heads. Real Madrid could be in the final of the Champions League and play Barcelona, um, which will be the first time those two sides have ever met in a, in a Champions League or European Cup final. So you could see a situation where Ronaldo could still win the two big competitions that they're competing for. And then, you know, it might be difficult. But if Barcelona do win... Uh, La Liga and the Champions League then I do think it is to- I think it is uh, already decided and, and quite reasonably as well I mean as Grant said that, that second goal the vignette of seeing Boateng Neuer and then on the goal line Rafinha who tried to hook it out but couldn't get there in time all lying on their backs um, beaten as Messi wheeled away in delight it just summed it up and the way he beat Neuer no one really even attempts to to dink the ball um, apart over Neuer from that close distance. He was only seven yards from goal, and he still did it. It really was astonishing, and uh, you know, and I, I hope we appreciate it as much as it deserves to be appreciated because we live in this era of everything is the best and we should always compare and Messi and Pele and Maradona. But, you know, when these guys stop playing Messi and Ronaldo, I don't think we'll ever see two players consistently scoring 50 goals a season or more um, and, and taking the game to the levels in which they've taken it. I, I really don't. So I feel very privileged that that we are able to watch this and on the biggest stages of, of all. Avi, you said that um, if Messi had done it in a World Cup final, would it have been the best goal ever? Well, maybe, but this stage is not far off that. True. Uh, the World Cup, yes, it comes out every four years. But when you get to a Champions League semi-final, it's one of the top three or four biggest games a, a guy can play in his career. So Messi is doing it at the top level time and again, which is what makes it so incredible. A couple points I'd make here. First off, we forgot to acknowledge the role of the CONCACAF Gold Cup in the Ballon d'Or race. Sorry. Uh, (laughs) Huge mistake there. Uh, Second, the third goal is the big one to me. As great as Messi's goals were, I still would have thought it 2-0 going back to Germany that you know, that Munich would be, you know, they, they were capable of, of turning that around. And while you don't want to ever write them off completely, especially after what happened against Porto, 3 nothing is a really hard ask for, for Guardiola and Bayern. Uh, and, you know, to give up that third goal, as Arsenal fans know, uh, late in the game from what happened with them against Monaco, uh, just a killer, uh, I think. And, and I thought that was... I understand you're pushing, you're trying to get that away goal, but it's not worth it, in my opinion, if you're going to end up giving away a goal like the one they did on the breakaway to Neymar. Um, Also, just with Pep Guardiola, I had put out on Fox Sports uh, and on SI a a little while back, people questioning whether he might be in trouble as far as his job. 
And what I've been told all along was that he was going to be okay, and that was even after the Porto loss, that he would have to go out in a particularly horrible way in Champions League for him to have his job in danger. And so that puts a little more on this return leg. If they go and, and make it close, I don't see Pep Guardiola having any problem. If they go and get destroyed in leg two at home, then I think he might have to start asking some questions. And I remember doing my big Bayern Munich story uh, for Sports Illustrated last summer and Karl-Heinz Rummenigge, the boss basically at Bayern, telling me, um, you know, we have, you know, We'll give a full vote of confidence to Pep Guardiola on his own. But it was a weird type of thing, given the context of what had happened at the end of last season, as if he was like making a nod to the history of Bayern just tossing away managers. And why are you feeling like you have to give him a vote of confidence? You won the Bundesliga by a bazillion points. Uh, it's a weird situation sometimes there at Bayern, especially with particularly bad results. I don't know what your sense is of that, Ben. Well, I agree with you, and, and I think these semi-finals are going to be the defining games in, in the Guardiola era at Bayern, given what happened last year as well. But Guardiola would argue that you know he is without some of his best players. He's without Robin, he's without Ribéry, and he's without David Alaba, who's been hugely important to him this season as well. So to take on, you know, to lose to a, a Barcelona who played like they did yesterday, I don't think there's any shame in it, um, especially when you're without your best players. Um, I think he could have locked it down at one nil down even. It just said, okay, I can see that Messi's on it tonight. Barcelona are doing well. You know, another coach might well have done that, but obviously that's not the Guardiola way. And that's certainly not, you know, how he would want his teams to play. I guess that's why we're all so um, inspired by watching, you know, what they do, because whatever it is, it's something interesting is going to happen. But, um, yeah, if they lose heavily, it will be a repeat of uh, of last year's second leg against Real Madrid, where they were one 0 down from the first leg. They went for it very early on and very openly in the second leg, and they lost four 0 Any repeat of that, and there, there could be questions asked, but my understanding is the same as yours, Grant. Whatever happens, he is going to be safe for one more year. And in fact, if if he was open to extending that contract, they would. They would want him to do that as well. And, uh, you know, I think Byron's going to have to go for it, obviously. And we saw that Neymar goal was a result of Byron going for it. And, and then the, the Suarez-Messi-Neymar line uh, coming through with, with the dagger. That was Messi's assist that sprung Neymar. And then Neymar did the rest against Neuer. So, you know, Barcelona, they're not the kind of team that's going to sit back and, and nurse their 3 nothing lead. You know, they're, they're going to go to Byron and, and play their game and have every opportunity to catch Byron. Uh, you know, cheating a little forward. So that obviously Guardiola's tactics will be looked at again. But, you know, what choice does he have this time? Really not many. Uh, now, now looking really quickly at the other uh, semifinal, Real Madrid, Juventus. Juventus with a fantastic performance at home, leads 2-1. Carlos Tevez, who has been, you know, again, we're talking about Messi and Ronaldo in this era. You know, put them aside. Tevez has been one of Europe's best players all season. Uh Ben, do you see Real Madrid coming back from this at home? They have the away goal, which in, in some ways gives them a little bit of an edge, even though they are losing 2-1. Yeah, I see them coming back from it. I, I, think, they'll be, I think they'll be okay. But it was very close. It was also very entertaining. Um, I like the way Juve played because they went for it. And they know that they knew they needed to score. Um, and 
they kind of got rid of some of these um, stereotypes that, that still persist about Italian football as being defensive and, and sterile and defense-based because the, the way Juve play um, is definitely not like that. And go toe-to-toe um, against Real Madrid, take them on. I think um, they deserve a lot of credit. And if Paul is back in the side from, from his uh, injury uh, break for, in time for next week, Juve might have a chance, but um, at the moment, I would say Real Madrid are 60-40 to go through. Grant, what, Grant, what do you think? And that is a good point. Paul Pogba obviously not playing in the first leg. If he does in the second, that, that changes things. Well, yeah, and I think also you look at, at Juve this year, and I think people who've watched them play in the Italian league knew that they were capable of performing that way against Real Madrid. Many people who maybe don't watch Juventus every week probably underestimated them heading into this. They were viewed as the the weak sister in relative terms of the four semifinalists, get an early goal, a good goal, uh, in which Tevez was just left wide open. In a similar way to Ronaldo being left wide open on, on Madrid's answer soon thereafter, um, I look at Real Madrid right now, and they're dealing with some injury issues. They've missed Luka Modric. They missed Karim Benzema. I don't think Sergio Ramos is nearly as effective as a midfielder as he is as a center back. And I thought Varane was really poor, actually, um, as a center back. I kind of like to see Ramos go back and, and take that spot, maybe have, I don't know, like a Yara Mendy come in uh, for the return leg. And we'll see if Benzema is available. Uh, Gareth Bale. Not many touches on the ball. A lot of Madrid fans unhappy with Gareth Bale, the guy they spent so much money for. Um, pretty high bar, admittedly, but he didn't have a big influence on that game. And I thought it was a big play by uh, the Real Madrid defense when Varane had that big blunder late and Fernando Llorente has, is in on goal, essentially. Casillas coming out in time, doesn't concede the penalty, and the rest of his teammates on the back line make sure that the goal isn't scored. And if it had been 3-1 going back to Madrid, that would have been very, very difficult for Real Madrid. Yeah, for sure. And so the the way we're looking at things right now is either Bayern Munich makes an epic comeback and, and we're talking about the, the glory of Pep Guardiola next week at this time, or Barcelona's in the final and you get Barcelona-Real Madrid or Barcelona-Juventus, which would pit Luis Suarez against both Giorgio Chiellini and Patrice Evra. I don't think we can go wrong. The game Ju- handshakes. <laughs> I don't think we can go wrong on June sixth, which is probably the best part uh, of all of this. Um, now we're going to shift gears pretty considerably. Uh, a lot of these guys used to star on the U twenty stage. This summer is the U twenty World Cup USA. We're taping this on May seventh. USA puts out its roster today, or twenty of the twenty one roster spots, we should say. Uh, with the deadline for FIFA being next week. Uh, now the the question that that begs, of course, is if Gideon Zalalem can get cleared in time because it would seem if you connect the dots that that one spot is is left open uh, in the event that FIFA processes uh, the USA and Zalalem's request. Just some of the names that are on the roster, Emerson Hyman and, and Rubio Rubin, who are both uh, capped on the senior national team, um, on on top of that, you've got Cameron Carter-Vickers, who's a 17-year-old center back at Tottenham, who's gotten rave reviews. Uh, he's going to be playing up at the U20 level. That's pretty fantastic. And Eric Palmer-Brown, the young center back at Sporting Kansas City, another guy who has, who has drawn uh, interest from Juventus, of, of all teams. Um, so, you know, you're looking at some talent here, and obviously some talent that wasn't called in. Junior Flores, who's a highly rated midfielder uh, at Dortmund, not part of this team. Um, but back to Zalalem real quick. Ben, you've 
around Arsenal, you know what what their feeling is about him as a player. Just how how bright is his future at at that club, and and in terms of you know potentially deciding on the futures of other players given his his timeline. He's definitely the right place when it comes to young players to to develop and to learn their trade and and to get opportunities in the first team. I mean, he's already played for, for Arsenal's first team um, at eighteen. Uh, in their Champions League game against Galatasaray earlier this season. And uh, the, the stats guys uh, went into overdrive because he was actually the first player to play for Arsenal who was born after Arsene Wenger took over the club, which is which is amazing. <laughs> He'd been the, uh, Wenger's like in his 19th year now. So Zalalem became the first guy to, who was actually born after Wenger took over Arsenal. It's amazing. He wasn't even born when Wenger took over the that, club. That is a crazy, I remember that crazy statistic. Well. Yeah. It makes us all feel really old. <laughs> now, now, on a serious note, you know, you think about young players that have, that have joined the club at a similar age, like Fabregas, and, and even this season, Bellerin, who's been the breakout um, you know, defensive star. He, he um, joined Arsenal at 16 worked his way up through through the ranks um, and gets a chance in the first team and then keeps his place. Has played over 20 times this season. And from Zolano's point of view, he's playing under-21s already at 18. So he's already ahead of schedule. I would imagine that he would get more first-team opportunities next year, certainly in the Carling, uh, the Capital One Cup, which is the, the League Cup, and, and used often by Arsene Wenger as, a, as an opportunity to blood in younger players but the point you made is interesting because this summer there's uh, some players in their midfield that Arsenal will have to make a decision on and maybe the likes of Zalalem uh, and an, another young player Serge Gnabry will influence those decisions so Abu Diaby permanently injured a great player when he's fit is out of contract now Wenger has, has a decision to make does he say Look, you know, you've not been fit for four years, and you know, I know personally that Diaby's worked really hard to get fit, and, and it's just not working for him. He's just one of the most unlucky players because uh, you know he does have the talent. But maybe Wenger says, "Look, if I keep you here, you're you're, you're now at the stage where you're nearly 29. You will be stopping the development um, of, of the younger guys who are who are 10 years younger than you. So I'm going to have to cut you free." Flamini is out of contract, and the big one for this summer is Jack Wilshire, who is also 23, um, often injury-affected um, injury as well. Hasn't made more than 20 appearances for Arsenal in a league campaign for five years now. So you wonder, Manchester City have been reportedly interested in him because they need to boost their English quota. Um, and City are no stranger to buying Arsenal's talent kind of when it peaks, like, like Nasri and Clichy. Um, you know they've done it before, and you just wonder if this is the right time for Arsenal to sell Wilshire and for Wilshire to leave Arsenal. Maybe they both could do with a bit of a change. And if that happened, then you know there's going to be a starting slot available. I'm not saying Salalem is ready for that now, but when Wenger makes those decisions, he makes them with with other players in mind. And so, how he sees Salalem's development might impinge on a decision over the future of a player as important as Jack Wilshire. That's what makes it interesting and significant as well. That is interesting. And, and it's so, uh, you know, I feel like ever since 
Freddie Adu, you know, everyone in, in the U.S. is always wary of the cautionary tale of, of the highly touted prospect who, you know, who, who doesn't live up to the expectations. But it seems like Arsenal is doing a, a good job of, of maintaining the hype, maintaining his development and, and keeping it on track. They, you know, could have easily rushed him uh, ahead. Um, but, you know, you, you see him play and you see that he can add some strength to his body. He was here... Uh, for a friendly last summer against the Red Bulls, and you saw him being, you know, kind of physically bumped off the ball, but you also saw the technical skill that has American fans just praying for this FIFA paperwork to go through, and for Arsenal fans for, you know, rightfully getting excited about him, um, and and to hear that, you know, he could potentially be involved with uh, with such, you know, high level decisions as as a factor, not necessarily the defining factor, but a factor is you know is is makes it more real i think and i think if he was able to be on this U- usu 20 world cup team um you know i think that's that's a boon for the us it it just all signs point to zalalem being for real uh you know whether that's next year or the year after yeah totally and i do think i do think the year after realistically so i don't want um to be misinterpreted as saying if wilshire goes zalalem is going to be the guy to replace him because that's totally not what i'm saying but it's you know the development of of youth prospects like this guy does have a knock on effect ar- around the rest of the club and and that is important in terms of um managing the expectations that i think is the hardest challenge for um everyone around the player and i think arsenal do that very well uh, and i remember when when fabregas made his debut there was a huge buzz around it and he wanted to play far more than he did he wanted more opportunities and he was probably ready you know, at 16, 17, he was ready. Um, but Wenger held him back and said, it's for your own good. Just trust me. And and so it proved. So I think um, the same will happen uh, with Zalalem. I'd imagine, you know, if, if things go in the best possible way, ten, maybe 10 to 15 games next season, um, not, not league games, but, you know, cup games and general appearances. Uh, and then the next season, we, we see how it goes. But in terms of uh, actual development, he's, uh, you know, he's in prime position, I think. And that's, that's definitely something to watch uh, for, for the future, for U.S. fans, for Arsenal fans, and, and we'll see what happens in the next week uh, regarding the U.S. U-20 World Cup roster if Salalem is cleared in time. Uh, ben, I want to thank you for your time. It's so great to have you back on. We're actually going to shift gears to MLS and bring in SI.com's Brian Strauss. Thanks for not forgetting about me. <laughs> never, never. We never could. We saved the best for last. Why do you think we're, we're, we're wrapping up here? Thanks for saying that. Your check's in the mail. <laughs> um, guys, this is you know the first of, of what should be a big rivalry for this league. MLS has been, I don't want to say obsessed, but, but has made a concerted effort to put a team in New York and, and to create a, a, a very close regional rivalry between the Red Bulls and another team. That team is NYCFC, and they play this Sunday night at Red Bull Arena. Uh, Brian, just you know, you can't really manufacture a rivalry, right? It, it kind of needs to build with some history. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I had. Uh, I'm fascinated by this. I mean, this is something the league has wanted, as we know, for for pretty much 20 years. Um, and it's worth looking at uh, the, the first attempt at an intra-city, intra-market rivalry, which was obviously the LA Galaxy and, and Chivas USA. And, and I had fun uh, this week talking to a couple guys who played in that game 
who uh, are now going to be uh, at Red Bull Arena on Sunday, Sasha Kleschen and Jason Hernandez. Um, and they were both on Chivas when Chivas was good. People forget that there was a four-year stretch where Chivas was a playoff team. And, and this was a, a well-put-together club that was competitive in MLS. Um, and, and, and both Sasha and Jason played in those games. And, and then they said it was a big deal. I mean, they, they said they could feel the, the tension. They could feel the, 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 the pursuit for bragging rights. They would see the Galaxy guys in the halls around you know, Home Depot Center. And, and they wanted to sort of stake their claim. And things obviously withered away. Uh, with that rivalry once Chivas sort of, you know, fell into the garbage dump. So, um, <laughs> you know, they realize that, that's a lesson for both of them. They said that, you know, the the the, the fans, it, it matters to the fans. It matters to the city. It matters in terms of bragging rights. But unless you do it on the field, unless you put together a team that's competitive and, 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 and a consistent winner, um, the rivalry is not going to mean as much. So the, the, there will be passion there on Sunday. There will be excitement on Sunday. But the real rivalries, you know, take shape and are sustained because of what happens on the pitch. And that's a good point. And, and Grant, you saw this team on the field last weekend against Seattle. They don't look very good. NYCFC is struggling. They're they're one five and three. Their only win is the home opener against New England, which at the time felt like a, a real building block for the team. But since then, they've They've fallen flat, and they run up against the Red Bulls team that's only lost once. Granted, it was their last game, but they've actually looked very good, as we've talked about on this podcast before, under new coach Jesse, Jesse Marsh. Uh, what, what do you see entering this game, and, and do you see a, a way out for NYCFC right now? Well, if you had seen Jason Christ, the NYCFC coach, after their 3-1 loss to Seattle the other night, he was death warmed over. I, that guy is really down right now about how difficult he says it's been to construct a team, openly asking if he f- forgot how to build a team, forgot how hard it was to build a, an expansion team. Uh, they're going through some real issues right now, and part of those are due to David Villa being hurt and him being their biggest threat at times, their only threat. Um, what's interesting is, though, is that NYCFC actually had decent moments against Seattle, and possession is not their problem. They, they do possess the ball, They just don't have anyone with real danger out there to score goals when David Villa isn't there. Um, You know, Christ told us that he was a little eh, disappointed with Nick's Discarude over the last couple of games, that he hasn't been getting as much out of him as as maybe he wanted. Uh, And maybe that's a lot to ask of a 24-year-old who does play for the U.S. national team, but we haven't seen a heck of a lot of over the last few years. And, uh, you know, NYCFC as a club was promoting... Discarude versus Dempsey, I I think that's too much to ask of of Mix right now. And so you look at this rivalry game, I I think the Red Bulls certainly will feel that they have the advantage coming in as the host. Uh, But strange things can happen, especially in rivalry games. And I fully expect the energy to be off the charts in this stadium. We saw last year in the playoffs, uh, especially with New England against the Red Bulls, what a full Red Bull arena could really be like. And you're like, wow, this is great. So I'm hoping that happens again. I think it could. And these teams, if they get some real reason, some real back and forth on the field to start building a rivalry the way it needs to be built, it could be a heck of a lot of fun. It could be. And I think I think that's, that's the hope, right? If you're an MLS fan, if you're a U.S. soccer fan, you want the New York rivalry to be a, a big thing. You want it to be as big as Seattle and Portland. These teams are going to play each other three times a year until the league expands to God knows how many teams. Uh, you know, you see these reports that the third rail is going to have 1,500 supporters there. That's NYCFC's official supporters group. That should make for some 
some good banter in the stands. Hopefully it all it all stays nonviolent, of course. Uh, but it's you know the energy is there, and and I think that's part of of building and, and cultivating a rivalry. Um, Brian, it sounded like you wanted to to chime in with. with yeah, something. I was just I was just going to say that that part of what you need is is you know you need friction between the players too. You you need the players on each side to have a real sense of identity, not only in terms of what their club's about, but then sort of looking at the other club as perhaps something different. Um, and right now, uh, we, we don't have that yet. I mean, I mentioned, you know, Sasha Kleschen and, and Jason Hernandez. They were groomsmen at each other's weddings. You know, <laughs> these, these guys these guys know each other. These these guys have, have run into each other over the years and, uh, you know, play, playing with or against each other in MLS with national teams, that kind of thing. So there, there, there's more of a fraternity right now, I think, probably on the field than there is, you know, opposition and like downright hatred. That's going to take a while to develop. Um, and so, you know, hopefully, like you said, in, 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 a, in a constructive way, hopefully that starts with the fan base first. You know, we've seen some banter back and forth. You know, you're going to have Red Bulls fans and NYCFC fans identifying themselves as part of their club, whether that's geographically or, or you know, trying to hang on to a certain piece of history or culture. You know, and, and then over time, as these teams become more competitive, as hopefully they meet in the playoffs We'll start to see that stuff develop on the field. Right now, they're sort of focusing on their own houses at the moment. I mean, the Red Bulls are doing well, but this is still a kind of a rebuilding club under a new coach, you know, a new new technical director, some new players, some new leaders in the locker room, a new style of play. It started well, but it's not perfect yet, and they've still got some stuff to do. And obviously, as, as Grant talked about, NYCFC, an expansion team, totally a work in progress, a long way to go. So right now, I think the three points for each team might be as big or even bigger than sort of making a statement about where this rivalry is going to go in the future. I have to say, one thing that made me laugh this week was when the song sheet for NYCFC fans that they were handed out got out and got made fun of, especially in England, uh, but a little bit here too, I think, with some back and forth on the, the Twitter accounts between the Red Bulls and NYCFC. And my big question, I have no problem with handing out song sheets for a new team. Why is the word crud, though, in, in one of these songs? Is that a placeholder for some, some stronger word that they couldn't print? Who uses the word crud anymore in anything? That's, that might be the biggest indictment here of, of them all. Uh, the best part about that banter was the third rail tweeting a picture back to the Red Bulls of the Red Bulls own song sheet in 1996 in their inaugural season. And then the Red Bulls come back with, uh, with a gif of Sebastian Velasquez, NYCFC's midfielder, drinking a Red Bull on the bench against the Seattle Sounders on Sunday. So the, the banter off the field so far has been, it's been fantastic. Now we see if it'll translate on Sunday night on the field in the first edition of the yet-to-be-named rivalry. And that's where we turn to next, because this rivalry needs a name. You hear the Clasico, you automatically think Barcelona Real Madrid, you hear Cascadia Cup, you think Seattle, Portland, Vancouver. Guys, we need to do the American Soccer Public a service now and give them the naming rights for this New York City FC, New York Red Bulls rivalry. Grant, let's let's take a first crack at it. What do you got? I actually spent some time thinking about this, and here's to start. I don't like the term derby for anything that takes place in the United States. I don't want to say derby. I don't want to say derby. That's, I respect those things around the world, but that's not a U.S. thing. I'm going with Classico because kind of like the name Planet Football that we chose, Spanish is a huge part of the language of American soccer, and I like it. I like the fact that when you hear the word Classico, 
even people who don't speak fluent Spanish understand what's being talked about here. So Classico is going to be a part of my naming. Now, the other thing I, I thought about was New York City, if you're talking about brand names for cities around the world, there is no better brand name than New York City. And maybe that's uh, being very New York-centric, but that's how I feel. Uh, I'm a New Yorker at this point. So <laughs> my name, with all of that taking into account, is the New York City Classico with a hyphen between New York and City. Get it? The New York City Classico. I do get it. I do get it. New York for the Red Bulls. City for New York City FC. Classico, as you've explained. Uh, all right. All right. I'll, I'll take that into, into submission. Brian, uh, you, you got a, a rebuttal. A rebuttal? Uh, no, I want to go trademark that baby. Um, <laughs> Uh, I mean, it seems like Hudson River Derby is, has become sort of what's organically happened here. Um, I, I, I kind of agree with Grant in a way about the Derby thing, but I would argue that Classico is kind of – there's a lot of Classicos around the world. And I don't know if, 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 if you know, I guess you would differentiate it with, with the hyphen and all that kind of fun stuff. Um, so Hudson River Derby works. Um, Hudson Hullabaloo would have some nice – alliteration but uh, you know hullabaloo is probably the same as crud who says that <laughs> so i started th- I, I thought about it too and i started thinking about di- different ways the rivalries are described around the world and um when i think of new york and new jersey i, I think of italian I-, I don't think of i know obviously there's a ton of spanish speakers there but but y- you have an immense italian heritage in both of those places um you know a- a- italian clubs that have won open cups things like that and 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 the Italian language, they always call it the the Darby della something. And so I started to think about what what nouns might work. And there's uh, there's uh, fiaculo, which is the would be the Derby of the torch for the Statue of Liberty. Uh, there there could be the Darby della mella, the Derby of the apple. Um, but I, I I finally settled on uh, the Darby della Casello, which would be the Darby of the toll booth. <laughs> because I nothing nothing says, you know. Harrison, New Jersey to the Bronx better than a toll booth. So my submission is Darby Della Casello uh, forever and ever. Unbelievable. I'm wondering if the logo would be Chris Christie, like his face in two lanes being closed. See, onto see now, now you're talking. Yes. Oh, my God. I, think has, I, think <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, I, I don't think I can top either of those. Uh, if I had to think of, of things to work in, it would be like a, a subway, given that you take the path, uh, you know, from, from New York to Harrison, uh, although you could also take the NJ Transit. It's actually quicker, a little bit longer of a walk, pro tip. Uh, but those, those are fantastic. So the New York City Classico and the, the Derby della, say that again? The ca- Casello, Derby ca- della Casello. Derby della Casello, okay. Uh, well, MLS, if you're listening, you're welcome. You just got you get, just got some free advice, um, guys. That was that was great. Uh, I think that is going to do it for us. Until next week, we're going to leave on on a high note. At least we think it's a high note. Hopefully, you do too as well. Uh, for Grant Wall, Ben Littleton, Brian Strauss, I am Avi Creditor. Thanks again. We'll talk to you next week.
about the Locked On Podcast Network, the number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.